Hey everyone, it's Andy. A couple quick notes before we start. First, as you've heard me say, we're working on a special series about Notre Dame law students and faculty fighting to win wrongful conviction cases. It's called Proving Innocence, and we're excited to drop the trailer for that series soon. Keep an eye out for it. Second, a show note. The conversation in today's episode was recorded prior to the pandemic. We kept it around because the material we cover is still relevant, even if the practice of visiting offices is not. As you might guess, current circumstances make it challenging to produce episodes on our normal timetable. Thanks for your patience, and thanks for listening. From Notre Dame Stories, this is Office Hours, where we visit faculty where they work to discuss their research and whatever else we happen to find there. The real estate market is rebounding after a dip in the spring. As it does, many people are asking, what does it mean to find the right home? Architecture professor Marianne Cusato is a leader in the home building industry. She's been named one of the top women in real estate by Fortune magazine, to list just one of her many accolades. She earned international acclaim for the Katrina Cottage, an attractive, well-built home that could be deployed quickly in case of emergency. And what Cusato recommends is an approach that flies in the face of many of today's popular home buying trends. We covered that and what it means to have a mini 3D model of herself in her office. But first, we started with Marianne describing architecture using an interesting metaphor. Anyway, I've always been drawn to it, I don't know why. Um, Interested in spaces, interested in how we live in spaces. I didn't really know what any of that meant. I didn't know what it meant to be an architect, what place meant, or any of those things until I got here. Um, I've, you know, always been interested in it. Um, This helped me at Notre Dame, I was undergrad through the program, helped me understand why some places feel better, some places feel like spaces, some places feel like you're in a room, like if you're outside you're still contained. And that was really interesting to me, to see that, um, to be able to put a language and an understanding to something that it felt but didn't know what it meant. Hmm. Um, And that some buildings look better than other buildings that you have like why am i walking down the street and looking at this building and it doesn't feel right well when you understand that architecture is a language with a vocabulary and a grammar that Mm. we all know the vocabulary the windows the doors the eaves the roofs um, but we don't all know the grammar so when a shutter is one foot on a window that's three feet wide it's, it's nonsense it's a nonsense sentence because it could never work it's not authentic okay and so we've lost over the course of history, or really especially the last hundred years, um, maybe 80, um, an understanding within the profession and to a certain degree in the general public of what that grammar is. Mm. And in recapturing that, you start to create places that feel like something. So that's always been an interest um, before I knew it was an interest and then became something. The other side of that is I've always had an interest in um, like travel trailers or smaller homes, yeah. just because it's kind of interesting. Like anyone can design something big. Like it doesn't take any extra effort. Right. It takes a lot of effort to make something small that doesn't feel like it's been Xeroxed down. Huh. And I was always interested in that. I was interested in the lower end of the market, um, just because it just feels like that's where the least love is put. 
either it's um, an experiment from some ultra modern sort of architect mm-hmm. that's sort of landing something somewhere and they get an award but never come back um, or it's just the cheapest of the cheap mm. and so in my career I went and worked for high-end residential firms because I wanted to approach the bottom not by you know bringing the bottom up but bringing the top down mm-hmm. um, and so I went and worked for places where I designed closets as big as the original Katrina cottage hmm. that that I wanted to put that much design and love into the other side and then when I went out on my own as soon as I could I immediately shifted towards the work that interested me more and it's just so much more meaningful to you know work with people that need something or just create places where people can gather yeah. so that's been the focus as as I've sort of shifted had sort of moved through my career um, and more so at this point in the disaster piece of it because there there's so many there's such a mismatch and there's a timing delay and so this you know trying to figure out the formula to get houses there that are safe and resilient that can come quicker that's always the the issue um, but also that are built in keeping with what was there that that we're not landing from outer space with some experiment or some you know let's let's go let's do some portfolio piece we're coming in with something if we've done our job well you won't know we were there you'll walk by and say well that's a nice home right but it's not going to stand out as something that shouldn't be there using the grammar analogy it would be like walking down the street and someone's speaking another language uh, if something's out of place on, on the street, right. right? That's right. Okay. Exactly. So how do you do that? How do you, uh, I mean, the concept is great, right? I mean, let's do this in a scaled down yet affordable and, and sustainable way. Mm-hmm. But that is a big task. So how do you, how do you break that down and, and get to the, the end there? Luckily, less is more in a lot of cases mm. that if you look at the DNA of a place, of the, the fabric buildings that built up that community, um, in most cases, it's a very simple box with well-proportioned windows and a decent roof. Hmm. Um, the, the most expensive piece of that is whatever the outdoor living space is, so putting the porch on the front. But the rest of it is a box. And it's actually our, <laughs> works in our favor yeah. because a lot of times <laughs> we're saying, no, 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 stop moving that roof around. Stop doing the extra stuff that you're trying to do and let's simplify this, calm it down. And, you know, in this, in, in Barbuda, they have these really amazing brackets and they have a heritage of different shutters. So mm-hmm. we're looking at the details. So we, we've kept the, the building envelope as simple as possible. It has to be because we need um, cross ventilation. They don't have air conditioning. So we look at what the climate is. Typically, the traditional buildings of a place were designed before air conditioning. So therefore, they were designed to accommodate the heating and cooling needs of a community. So that's an easy win because when we're looking back at, okay, okay, well, how's the best way to capture the breeze through here? How's mm-hmm. the best way to, you know, shade the space? Then the solutions actually get pretty simple. Why do you think the, you know, the, the infamous FEMA trailer uh, way to address this problem persisted for, for so long? Well, like every everything, they treated the symptoms, not the disease of a problem, and got to the FEMA trailer by a very logical series of steps. Mm-hmm. Of course, they. I think we can all agree that that it was the wrong ending point, 
but they reacted in the uh, rational way to real problems. So if you look at FEMA in 2005, when they deployed, you know, when it became the sort of formaldehyde, all of that, um, they were reacting to a series of events leading up from Michael. So Michael was the major one in 1992, August of 1992, that flattened Miami in South Florida. Okay. Um, it came out, you know, it was a surprise. They weren't ready for it. It hit, of course, as storms in many cases do, are impact the people that can least afford it. Yeah. Their buildings are built with, you know, not as, not as stringent codes. Mm-hmm. And so before the codes were increased, people were able to build, um, you know, more of a range of things. Yeah. Um, and so when FEMA came in in Miami, they brought in double-wide trailers. Now, as a double-wide trailer is sort of another sort of hot button, um, and it's not necessarily something a community wants to have. In 2005, when Katrina hit, in August 2005, um, there were still people living in double-wide trailers in South Florida hmm. following Andrew. Hmm. And FEMA, over the course of that time, have been trying to get them out. And communities are saying, don't drop something here that will be here for decades. Yeah. And, you know, this, is, this, this temporary housing wasn't temporary. So they made, the, they made the course correction, which is a correct course correction to make, to make it smaller. Instead of what we proposed, which was acknowledging that it's not, it's not a temporary solution, and using a solution that could become permanent. Mm-hmm. So we we took the FEMA trailer. We all agreed that that was sort of the wrong route, and said, okay, if you're reacting to the very real, the the reality that when a storm happens of scale, it will be years before anyone can rebuild. Mm. Why are we putting anything temporary in there in the first place? Gotcha. Yeah. Why don't you rapidly deploy a building that can either sit behind the the main footprint of the house? just like the FEMA trailer, while you rebuild, and then either become um, a granny flat or a rental unit, because rental units become extremely difficult to replace. They don't fall under the same funding sources. Hmm. So rental populations are proportionally affected more hmm. than homeowners, because homeowners have more avenues towards rebuilding. But the um, if you own a FEMA won't give you funding to rebuild your um, second your second unit. So if you're a landlord and you don't have enough insurance, you just let it go. Well, that's fine for you because you've got your house, but the renter that was in it doesn't have a place. Mm -hmm. So by doing these cottages in the backyard, you could actually help to fill in the need for the rental income. Or you move it off of that property altogether and it becomes a little rental cottage port car you know a uh, cottage park so there's lots of different options for yeah. how that can be used it could be you know a permanent building in a temporary location or it could be the first piece of a larger home mm-hmm. so there's the resources aren't lost yeah a lot of different ways to use it but the the overarching uh principle is longevity and that's right can be there for a while or longer right? exactly Tell me about this here. Yes, so this is um, Mini Marianne and Mini <laughs> Gigi. Um, the first uh, Gigi, you said. Gigi, this is Gigi. Okay. Um, this is the first three um, D printed person that came out of our library here at the school, and technically the second. The first one failed at the ankles, but um, oh. 
add the. Um, the I, I have done the same thing running, actually. It failed at the ankles, <laughs> okay. so it's, it's, it happens. Um, and the first 3D printed um, little puppy dog, Gigi, <laughs> um, to scale, and she is gray, so it fits the, the color. Um, so when the library a few years ago sort of have shifted over into engaging in as many sort of digital mm -hmm. um, platforms as possible, 3D printing was one of the first ones. There was actually a, a 3D printed Katrina cottage, which I couldn't find, mm. and so we brought along um, Marianne and Gigi. <clears throat> but the um, what I love about these are the, how we engage here at the school in new technology, looking at the the best of today, pulling with it the best of what's come yeah. to sort of work for tomorrow. And I think that's sort of symbolizes what we're about in the school is that at, from the outside, it can seem like we're sort of ye olde, um, like, oh, these guys are looking at columns. You know, it's mm -hmm. just it there's we've been accused of being insular and sort of backward looking hmm. um we're actually very we're open and forward looking what we do here is 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 about how we build communities in a sustainable way for the future in a resilient way in a way um that you know architecture is part of a very sort of silo based world and mm -hmm. the architect the role of the architect is one of, is is one of the last generalist professions. Do you, do you think there is an appetite or a, uh, for that type of thing or a, a a rising consciousness of things like space and how all this fits together? There is. I mean, I I just again yesterday got another. Well, I'm sort of in sort of the circles where I would get these things, but another saying you know we can we can track that a walkable community holds its value more. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that, yes, it feels good. And now we can say, if you live here, your property value will be higher. So now it's, it's, it's also um, followed up. You could also look at the health of it. Mm -hmm. You look at the health of somebody that walks to school. So they did a, a survey a few years ago charting. Oh, is, I mean, this is to start first. Um, you know, did you walk to school when you were a kid? Uh, yeah. Do your kids? No. That is the answer that most people will give you. Mm -hmm. um, this, they tracked kids in walkable communities versus kids in um, completely auto-dependent. Hmm. And they found that the, even if you're walked to school and you don't have to chart your own path there, you're walked with an adult or in a group, right. the mere fact that you've put one step in front of the other and you haven't tripped or walked into traffic by the time you get to school, you will be more ready to learn than the student that sits in the back of the car and completely disengages. Hmm. That the mind is just engaged enough that you've had a little fresh air, that you've sort of brought in some oxygen from the trees around you, mm -hmm. and that you haven't died. <laughs> like, helpful. Helpful. Yeah. Um, but it engages you, and that those students have fewer um, ADHD anxiety, sort of the the restlessness mm -hmm. that a, than a child that is just strapped in the back of the car, mm -hmm. checks out, daydreaming, like we all would, we right. all do. Right. Um, and by the time they get there. So these are, these are real sort of health benefits. The trees, if you breathe, if you're around a tree and breathe more oxygen, it, you know, they say go to nature, but well, why don't we bring some nature back into our cities? Yeah. And so these very, you know, concrete things that will add the value to your home, that will add the value to your life, that will just make it, 
you know, better. We went through these drive till you qualify sort of years, especially, you know, the 95 to 2005, especially, but we're back in it. We're still there mm-hmm. where you just go out a little bit further to qualify for a little bit more house, but then you're driving in. Right. And what does that do to you? When, when was the last time you're, when, when did the kid play in that backyard? Because mm-hmm. they're overly programmed and they're being driven everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere. And if you have like multiple ones at different places, the, it's what, what type of life is that for them or anyone else? And, you know, it's not to say get rid of the car. We're, I'm fully in support of cars. <laughs> I just don't want to sit in mine for an hour a day. Right. Right. I'm really happy with my five-minute commute. So in uh, uh, The Just Right Home, mm-hmm. you talk about um, the big three. So function, cost, and delight. Yes. Um, obviously, function and cost, I think most people um, might have an idea about. But the delight piece is kind of what you're getting at here, right? I mean, what's your quality of life in, in a space? And yeah. it, do you think that should trump cost? I mean, should it be considered in, in kind? or It can't be left out of the equation. Hmm. And I, I should point out, actually, the, I learned about that here from Vitruvius, the first documented, see, this is why what we do here is important, <laughs> the first sort of documented architect from, I think, I usually get the year wrong, um, 2280 or something like okay. that, wrote about firmness, commodity, and delight. Hmm. That all buildings had to have all three. Um, it's easy to get two. You right. can, you know, you can get, you can have a wonderful house that is affordable, but you know, it might right. not function very well. You know, you can have, you can pull the levers on any two, um, but if you ignore the third, you you lose something that you can't get back. And we're trained to ignore that. Oh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. We, we, we dismiss or we're told, no, you need to, we're, the, sort of the current of life sort of pushes us into what we should do. Why are we continuing to drive till you qualify to build a, a house that your kids are never going to do in that backyard, that you're heating and cooling? How many hundreds of dollars a month are you heating and cooling this giant yep. foyer? Is, it, is that really the life that we want? Now, some people do, and hey, if you, if you want it and you can afford it, I'm not here to tell you not to, right. but what I'm sort of my position in this and our position within the school is we don't think that's really what people want. And we want to put in place solutions and mechanisms that get you a commute that's less in a home that you can afford to live in. Because if it's a little bit smaller, maybe you put a little bit more per square foot into the finishes. Mm-hmm. And in the process of doing that, you make it easier to maintain. You consider the total cost of ownership, not just your mortgage, but when you add your commute and what the the cost of that commute for every person that's 16 and older is required to have a car in most households to Mm -hmm. function, (laughs) uh, when you add that cost in, when you add the cost of heating and cooling and the cost of maintaining a building into your mortgage and consider the total cost then, then the numbers and where you allocate funds becomes very different. And that if we, we'd like to give options that increase your quality of life, increase your investment and, and it, you know, sort of save you time. Like why not? Who wouldn't want that? Right. All right. So I watched some HGTV and is that, that show Tiny Houses? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've probably been asked about this before. Oh, I have. I have lots of thoughts. Oh, okay. <laughs> How long well, is your recording? <laughs> well, I, uh, um, I, I'm just curious. Is that uh, some kind of 
overreaction yes. to what you're talking about? Yes, but it's perfect. So with the tiny houses, they will they will get eyeballs on screens um, either to watch them or click through pictures. Yeah. I equate it to the ice road truckers. Like on all of those shows in Alaska right. where you're sitting in your house and you're sort of busy life and you've sat down and you're taking a break and you look at that and say, oh my God, my life is so overwhelming. Could I? <laughs> Should I just go to a homestead in Alaska? Should I just go to a tiny house? Like just get rid of all of this. Yeah. And so it's it's not that, that most people want to shimmy up that ladder in that tiny house. Uh-huh. Is that they're looking at their 5,000 square foot house or their 3,000 square foot house and their hour long commute and saying, is this really what I signed up for? Hmm. And so that's where my work comes in. Not, and I very distinctly do not build tiny houses, but I build small houses and yeah. smaller houses to say, okay, well, yeah, you can still have a king size bed and closets where you could still have a full sized kitchen, but you know, what is it that you need? Mm-hmm. And then let's, let's design around that. Look at the space in your home that you actually use. Right. And let's design a house because it's probably going to be about 1,500 square feet. Maybe it's 1,200 square feet mm. that you actually go in. And then if your house is a little bit smaller, we can put you in a community where you can walk out of that house and get to something. So when you've come back from the trip and you're exhausted and you haven't gone to the grocery store, you don't have to drive somewhere. You just walk down the street. Mm-hmm. When you, at the after work, if you want to meet up with friends for a drink, you don't have to worry about, you know, now we have Uber, so it's better, but it's still a headache. Mm-hmm. Isn't it just nicer just to everybody have a drink, everybody walk home? Yeah. And so why are we only building, you know, urbanism and communities doesn't mean we're suggesting we build Manhattan everywhere. Right. That it can still be communities where homes with, you know, a small yard, and I say small not to be punitive, but that's probably all you actually want because some, I was talking to someone, they had a great phrase once. They said, well, I don't want the big backyard. I want a park because I don't have to mow the park. When you wake up in the morning, from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, what do you want your experience to be? And how do we get that into yeah. a, a package, uh, something that you can purchase, something that your neighbors would want to move into? Mm-hmm. And that, that's what we look at here, yeah. the how you do that. And then we, we overlay that with, well, we have some really big issues going on in society. We, you know, we can do the, sort of the regular stuff all day long for just communities. But how do we use those tools to address these major issues of inequality, hmm. um, housing shortages, labor shortage in construction, um, the the resiliency issues, where we're going to have to make some very hard decisions. That and and Notre Dame stands in the really is one of the potentially um, a, a leader in that because we have we we with our sort of mission, the mission of the university, um, a position to be able to say, well, like, okay, guys, let's let's really look at how we do this, and let's. There will be winners and losers. Hmm. There's just going to be. There can't not be. We don't have enough resources to maintain the wasteful building that we've built. Yeah. We build right on the seashore, and then wonder why a storm surge wipes our homes away. So there are places in this country that we shouldn't build that we're going to have we're not going to be able to because we just can't afford like they said in the keys 
we can't afford to keep raising this up. Mm -hmm. And there will continue to be. So how that happens over the course of the next several decades, um, whether it happens slow or fast, whether we'll get, whether we'll start, whether we'll make the value proposition a positive, that, okay, well, there are some things built here that aren't great. So how do we take what is, I mean, it's obviously tragic anytime someone has to move from their home because mm -hmm. of a weather condition. Um, but how do we take that and turn it into a catalyst for good? Mm -hmm. And if we don't, we'll always be looking back to, oh, so good then. And that's right. not who we are as a, as a culture. Right. We're a forward-facing. Notre Dame Stories Office Hours is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour.